Welcome to Careers and Mental Health Conversations. This is the podcast where we discuss career counselling, career guidance, mental health awareness and mental health training in the workplace. With your hosts, Patrick, Sally, Tina and Amy. Hi and welcome to Careers and Mental Health Conversations with the Career Development Centre. I'm Tina Winchester and today I'm joined by the wonderful Damon Millard who is the Player Welfare Officer at Brisbane City Football Club. Look, let's get started by um, telling our listeners a little bit about what you do at the football club. So it's pretty much a fairly new sort of um, thing that we've, initiative that we've started up. Um, I've been studying uh, sports development sort of uh, thing and I, I the, the club came looking for coaches um, to come and help with the with the workings of the club and I sort of went to them and went straight up this is my story this is what I want to do what do you reckon and they pretty much said go for it and that's they've been really supportive and um, over the last sort of six months or so um, I've been working with the club and and at the same time sort of putting out a lot of fires that come up with different things with welfare in the club but it's a fairly large club yeah uh 700 to 800 i think players something like that it's pretty huge um and all the coaches and stuff that comes with that and so in the last six months i've just been developing a program as i've seen the workings of the club to to really meet the need for the welfare and the development of the players what kind of areas does a welfare officer cover i mean what kind of um, responsibilities do you have yeah, so early on a lot of it's been to do with putting out fires that come up. So you have a club that has kids from really young age right up to seniors who are trying to make a, a living and a, make football, soccer their career. Um, so it's pretty wide-ranging the sort of issues you come up with. Um, there's a lot of family issues with kids younger. Uh, there's a lot of um, work-life balance stuff with guys as they get um, a bit older and they're trying to put everything into their career but they're trying to work as well and and um, there's a lot of setbacks, uh, injury setbacks and stuff like that. So we have injury pathways for guys coming back from long-term injuries. Uh, we have a lot of – I have a lot of mentoring stuff that I do with, with guys that are going through stuff, um, helping the coaches to understand their players um, to get the best out of them. Stuff like that. So it's quite wide ranging and, and early on it's been sort of figuring out how the club works and trying to work a program around that. So I've met with a lot of different sports um, people in the development of players and the, the welfare of players side of things and have um, sort of come up with a three pillar sort of thing that we're building at, at Brisbane City, which is pretty exciting going forward. So. Great. Can you tell us about the three pillars? Yeah. So there's, we sort of break it up into three areas and that's the, the well-being of the player is, is what we look at and so that's all to do with the way that um, their sort of life outside of soccer is going and, and how that affects their, their football. Um, then we've got um, sort of um, the education side of things which is something that I'm really pushing for and that's a real proactive um, side of, of what we do and that's teaching them you know simple things like how do you prepare for a game? What happens before the game if you have sort of any anxiety or anything like that? You know, teaching them about um, we, we wanting to get into teaching them about social media use and 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 identifying you know symptoms and stuff that they might have to do with um, mental health and 
things that um, hold them back from performing at their best. So there's all the education side of it. That, that's huge. They should listen to the Brendan Frivola um, yeah. podcast with okay. on Pucker Up. He talks about yeah. the, the negativity on social media when he was yeah. becoming unwell. It's and huge. he would read it every night, every night, and take those those comments on board. So damaging. It, it's very damaging. Yeah. And that's something that is becoming more and more important um, at any level of sport. Um, so, so the well-being, the um, uh, what was the other one? Education, and then um, we've got the, the the player development side of things. So then that that's really helping them to develop um, really strong, um, you know, things like resilience and um, thing, things to do with like uh, psychologically resetting in a in a in a match. So when they have a setback in the match, how do they come back from that? In the match, if a match is ninety minutes long and they miss the goal in the fifth minute, um, what do they do? Right. <laughs> um, also, like um, things about you know their pregame routines and, and the, the, you know uh, uh, managing arousal levels yep. mid-match, all those yep. sort of things that that to do with um, sport um, is re- really really important. So they're the three pillars that we're sort of working and we're developing. That's growing exponentially as we go as we get deeper right brilliant it's excellent how open are the players to this i'm sure there might be some resistance from some like we don't need this you know we've got it is there much or are people open early on when i showed up and i just was this new guy and i think even like the coaches were a bit like oh this player welfare you know just here to moddy coddle players and that sort of stuff and so i I had a lot of breaking down barriers i'm not going to jump around that that was that was a pretty big thing, but I think when they realised that I wasn't just here as a you know fluffy sort of person, I was here to try and my my desire is really to to help the player succeed on and off the pitch. Mm. That's pretty much, and and I believe there's a direct correlation between how their life's going off the pitch and how they're performing. And so I'm trying to get no the best doubt. out of them, yeah. you know, and and along the way because I'm trained and I've seen these things uh, firsthand and I've experienced them in my own life, it's I can pick up the signs a lot quicker than a coach can. Absolutely. And so they're realizing, oh, hang on, you're picking up this, you're working with this guy for a couple of weeks and then he's starting to perform again. And they, they, they sort of like it. And because I've got a sport background and I'm, I'm heavily involved with sport, my family's had a very big background in sport, they realize pretty early on that I'm still competitive and I, and I know a lot about sport. And so that sort of helped as well. Yeah, so that yeah, broke down it. a lot of the barriers. Um, along the way so yeah it, it was hard early on and um, but it's getting easier and easier as I as I go along. When it comes to the players um, c- you know concerns or issues that they might have how much of a part do you think that the, the pressure of the environment plays on the mental health of the of the players? I think it's huge. Any of those environments are probably unlike anything that you experience in the world like you do have um, people are in a, in a normal job are trying to obviously trying to go up in their career and trying to get promotions and that sort of stuff. But there's nothing like throwing a, a bunch of men or women in a, into a team, having trying to get them to be friends and then asking them to compete against each other for sports yeah. in the team. It, there's nothing like that. Um, and there's nothing like at the highest level where um, you perform and you do your job, then everyone is able to get on social media and critique mm. your job, um, not knowing anything about the background. Um, I Obviously, having family playing at the highest level, I go on a lot of forums and that sort of stuff to, to see stuff, and I, I've never seen anything like the way that um, people who don't have 
any skill in that yeah. area can sit and say, why does the coach pick this guy? Why does he, he's not good enough? And we have no idea what's yeah. going on behind the scenes. We have no idea what the coaches ask that player to do. And so it's a really, really difficult environment for players. And I think it's probably worse than it's ever been because now they are seeing though before, you know, discussions that were happening at the pub were happening at the pub yeah. and the player didn't hear it and if the, if the fans didn't like that player and didn't really matter, now it's splashed all over the internet. People are so bold as to tag the player right. in when they're talking about things and it's just the pressure on these guys is immense and it's really scary. No, I, I think we've, we've got some really big issues to do with the way that social media is used and the pressure that's heaped on players. Yeah, very. Fr- yeah, it is frightening actually because I can imagine that. Well, well, we know that from you know some players in different sports have come out and talked about it themselves about how much um, the negativity on social media affects their mental health when they're already under immense pressure. So, you know, shame on those people that do choose to do that. To yeah, and, to and when you when you start to think that, you think about all the times that you've you know might have liked a post or something on on Facebook or you know yeah. or liked a picture on Instagram that was sort of you know maybe taking the piss out yeah. of someone yeah and you realize hang on this is this is a person yeah, this, yeah. there's a person behind this yeah. and when a 22 year old um, man who's only 22 years of age has to do something like delete Twitter or delete mm. Instagram because they just couldn't handle it yeah you, that, that's telling you there's a problem there for sure there's a big problem um, and so as a society we've got a lot to answer for when it comes to that sort of thing and it's something that clubs are going to have to really watch and and educate on and and protect. Yeah, they got a real um, duty of care to protect their their players uh, going forward because um, it's a different world. Uh, they've got to keep up. So damaging. Yeah. So damaging. The pressures of of, um, of the sporting world um, we've just talked about, but how much do you think that might impact on the lives of of the athletes at your club when they're home with their families? I think definitely, like, I think it, it probably the way that sport is now, even at a semi-professional level, it takes up, like, a big chunk of their week. Um, you know, they're training three, four times a week and, and you know, there's, you know, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds that are training three times a week and playing a couple of games on the weekend. Um, so that's consuming all their life. And so if you're doing that and you're in this sort of bubble mm. and um, – then to try to disconnect from that and, and go and, and be with your family, um, I think is, is a real problem. Um, yeah. And uh, I think clubs are starting to, to acknowledge this uh, and try to build families within their clubs. I think that's probably one of the real proactive things that I've seen, especially like places like AFL and stuff have worked really hard to try and um, they do clever things like when a kid gets drafted, they'll – they won't let the kid just move to that. If a kid gets drafted from from Melbourne to Brisbane or from Brisbane to Melbourne, they don't just um, throw them in and ask them to go and rent a place. They'll put them with a family, right? A family that's close to the club, and, and they get that support and that sort of stuff. And then when then they help them to find a, a house that and now a few of them could live together. Yeah, um, like my cousins live um, with a couple of guys from Melbourne, from North Melbourne, they all live in a house together. And so they're all within that environment and it creates that family atmosphere um, because otherwise you need to – I think you need to have like-minded people around you because I don't think the rest of society understands no, that's what I works. No, I get that. Yeah. And the pressures that come. And so I think they, they need to create families within the, in the club in order to, 
to protect their players. Good, that's good. Um, the young players, so some of the young players from you know 10 or 12 or, or whatever that are, are coming into the sport and dedicating a lot of their time to, to training and, and playing. What kind of advice could you give to their parents around how to, to care for their, their young people in terms of not just nurturing their ability to, to play the sport, but also caring for their, their psychological welfare as well? A couple of things that I've done um, with some of the kids that have come through and have, have sort of been flagged as having a few issues and that sort of stuff, I try to teach a few sort of practical techniques that, that can help parents. Um, one of the big things is, is briefing and debriefing. So that's a, a big thing that I try and do with uh, teach with parents and they can do it. Um, it's a reminder, I try to remind them that the car rides the, the time. So car ride is, is really important. And so um, we talk, we teach them to talk about opportunities to, to talk about resilience and um, opportunities to talk about the mistakes they've made and, and moving on from those mistakes because a, a um, 10-year-old that, that misses a important kick in the, in the grand final um, we'll, we'll, we'll stew on that for a long yeah. time. Um, and so talking about, um, in the car before they get there, talking about, oh, what do you know, what do you want to get out of training today? And trying to, um, to help them to sort of bring their goals back to, to, um, sort of manageable levels because, um, a lot of these kids are getting picked up and put into like academies and these sort of things at 10, 12, 12 years old are in academy and their goal at 12 is to, play mm, in Europe, yeah. play, you know, yeah. make the A-League, whatever, and they're, they're 12. And so I'm teaching parents that, that yeah, you should have value-based goals as opposed to having specific long-term goals. Yeah. So I don't know if that makes sense. but A realistic I, expectation. What I try to do is, so not to, to quell that, not to say, oh, no, that's, you know, that's ridiculous or whatever and, and try to... What we do is take it to, from being a specific goal to being a values-based overarching goal. So instead of saying, okay, I want to play professionally um, and that's what I'm working towards as a 12-year-old, saying, okay, I want to play soccer to the best of my ability no matter where I'm playing. That's the overarching goal. That's a value-based. Whatever, Whenever I play, I'm going to try and give my best. That's the value. Uh, and that doesn't that works whether you're a professional player playing in Spain or if you're playing, you know, down the road at, at Mitchelton Soccer Club. That works. And so that's the value-based one. And then having, and then taking those goals underneath those and making them smaller. So we ask, I ask parents to set, to help them set goals for each training session, each game. So say uh, at this training session, I want to really um, hold on to the ball every time I get it. I want to turn it over. And then in the debrief, they go, oh, how'd you go with that? And I um, lost it a few times. And, and then they can, they can debrief that. In a game, taking it smaller smaller goals in this game you know you might get that from your coach you know i really want you to um make forward runs into the box every time you get the chance so well that's going to be my short-term goal that doesn't change the overarching goal i'm going to do my best i'm going to play at the best level i possibly can and so that works and so messi or ronaldo can still have that same overarching goal and as the same goal as a 12 year old playing in australia and so that's where we try to take it. And I try to teach parents about that sort of stuff. And then if it's a small-term goal, you can short-term goal, training by training, game by game, you can actually debrief that mm. and brief that really well. You can well. celebrate the things that you do well. You can you appreciate can catch the them things doing the right that, thing. That's right, yeah. yeah instead of going yeah. at the end of a training session, if, the, if a 12-year-old's goal is to play professionally, you can't debrief that. 
because it's just too far away. It, it's, it's, uh, you know, you, you can't really measure that. You can measure little tiny goals and having value based goals, um, are just easier. And it doesn't matter because one of the biggest problems I deal with is setbacks to do with injury. So you, you we had a, a promising goalkeeper come up, had a great preseason, um, was just about to crack the first team ACL, done his knee out for 12 months. Okay. Now if his goal was, I want to play for the first team and I'm going to try and get picked up at the end of the year, that's over. That's over. And that, and mentally that just rocks you. And just, but if his, his, his goal is that I'm going to play to the best of my ability, no matter where it is, no matter what time, that is easily transferable to anything. So he can take that into his rehab and go, well, I'm going to do my rehab the best I can. Absolutely. Because that's the stage. I mean, I can't do anything else. Um, and even if he was to have a horrific injury and never play again, he can still have that overarching value that, okay, now I'm just working at this club. I'm decided I'm going to coach. I'm going to be the best coach I can be at this. At that, that still works. And so that's where I try to, to move. And I, I do a lot of teaching parents about that sort of stuff. Um, because yeah, they, they sort of jump on the bandwagon with these huge goals and they're just not measurable. No. And I can kind of understand it from a parent's perspective because, uh, you know, how proud would you be? Yeah. And want the best in terms of you need to be competitive. You've got to get out there. You've got to be seen and all of that. And it is, it's hard when it's because kids, when they get setbacks anyway, it's like the world has ended. But when you, when you're doing that kind of thing, it does feel the world really would feel like it was ending, wouldn't yeah. it? Oh, definitely. Which is huge. Any sort of setback, then it, a long-term goal just seems so, so much further away. Yeah. Than, and, and yeah, you, you need something that will get you through no matter what the situation happens, no matter if you're in a terrible accident and you, you lose a limb, you can still take that value-based goal and be the best, you know, um, player you can be. And you, and you could take that and then go on to, you know, compete in the Paralympics or. Absolutely. Doesn't, no, it you, doesn't you know, need to. It doesn't to be, change. No, no. And that's where, that's where we've got to take our, our goals and take them from specific long-term goals to value-based goals with smaller goals underneath that all contribute to that. Yeah. Excellent. It's brilliant. Damon, how important do you think exercise is for maintaining mental health? Because obviously the, the work that you do is all focused around exercise. Um, tell us a bit about that. It's, yeah, it's definitely not only from a scientific, you know, point of view, the fact that, you know, exercise releases chemicals and stuff into our brain and helps us to, you know, to, to deal with, you know, depression, anxiety, all those things. But there's another side of it too, to do with sport where it teaches you resilience and it, and it, and it gives you life lessons that, that you never would have got before. And so it's very, very, very important. And it's, um, I think the team environment especially is a great tool for teaching young people how to survive this world. There's a lot of setbacks and stuff that happen in, in sport and those things, you know, they make us stronger if they're, if, if, um, you have the support around you while you're going through those things. They, they make you strong and set you up for a successful life. And I think it's crucial. Um, I know from my point of view, I, I had a, I, I have a bad back from an incident that happened a couple of years ago and haven't been able to play sport, um, for a while. And, um, it's been really difficult. I've noticed big time, like the, the struggle with, with, with that. And, um, I've just started to join the gym with my wife and we, Go and put the kitties in the in the creche, and and already I've noticed that, and it's only been a week, and we've noticed that you know it just 
lifts you. It just it gives you it motivates you. It gets the blood pumping. It just you know it's a instead of me lying in my bed and just to get out and and to be around other people and have a share a common goal and and see results and all those sort of things and and develop like I'm doing Pilates at the moment because my back's really bad and yeah. I am horrendous like I can't <laughs> can't touch my toes I don't remember last time I touched my toes I look like I don't know what I look like I look like a beached whale on the in the back row and I sit in the back row but already like you know the next day you can feel my posture's a bit better and 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 lots of stuff and you see the results and it drives you and it, it's just so important and so the, the more kids that we can get involved in sport the better and they can catch that love then it's and and it's already been seen that I think the government recently said that there was something like a every dollar they invested in sport they got a seven dollar return because of the um, health issues they don't have to deal with and those sort of things later on um, and that's probably only scratching the surface yeah, because yeah. they're probably not even measuring the mental side of things yet so it's definitely a, it's a no-brainer yeah um so your situation how you got involved in um player welfare and you said that when you first went to the club you told them your story what story did you tell them oh i don't know there's probably a couple of stories to do that have sort of led me on this path probably the the big part of why i've always had a passion for sport love sport um play, did a lot of played a lot of sport growing up and, and played at pretty high levels but my family's very involved in sport so I've had you know guys playing in AFL cousins and my brother played Australian volleyball and um had a uh, couple of cousins play rugby union one played for the Reds and so there's like it's just a it's just a family thing it's in your blood uh, it's in, yeah it's in our genes sort of thing um I'm probably a failure in my family because I you know didn't play professionally or whatever um, but it probably was a bit of a different environment. I sort of chose to go down the path of what I've done as opposed to, to going hard at sport. But it, it's um, I've sort of got a background in, in that, so I've got a passion for sports. But when I was 18, I, I was coming out of school and I didn't really know what I was wanted to do. And um, I was thinking maybe I'd do like a business degree or something. I was going to do something. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I remember I was just about to finish school, so... Now I just finished school. I'd just been on schoolies, and um, I was really looking forward to because I was about to turn eighteen. I was about just under a month out from turning eighteen, and um, at that time my cousin was playing for the Reds and um, going really well. And and um, he was sort of like my hero. And so he he um, he used to say to me that he was like friends with a Wendell Sailor back then, and they were all hanging out. And he said, "Oh, you're eighteen soon. We're going to go. You know, we're going to go out after the games. We go to this." club or whatever and they get up, get us to go up to this room up top and he used to tell me all these stories yeah. about what they did and I was like could not, oh yeah mate you'd tell that <laughs> to a 17 year old yeah, you yeah. Know, I'd already told everyone in my school that's what I was going to do <laughs> and um yeah and so he it was getting I was getting really excited finished school I was going to go down the business degree sort of path and um I remember we were driving one day and um we got a phone call I remember I was in the back of the car and they couldn't find my Straight away, I had like everyone had sort of like a weird feeling about it, and um, like I sort of I sort of thought he might might have been out, you know, uh, you know, out on a night and just sort of got lost and didn't come didn't come home. And some phone calls went back and forth. They still can't find him. Does anyone know where he is? And eventually, the phone call came through, and they found out that he, um, yeah, that he'd taken his own life. And so that was just like, oh, 
the, the whole family just rocked everyone. Um, and yeah, my, my cousins and, and which are their brothers and sisters and everything like that, my auntie and uncle. And, and it was just sort of a horrific time for the family. And that was just a jolt for me. That was probably the jolt for me because I just was sort of going down a selfish path where I was just like, oh, I, just, I don't really know what I want to do. I could do business, you know, business. I was pretty capable at whatever I did. And it just made me think, I don't, I just straight away realized I'm exactly like Michael. Exactly. I was always the, the life of the party and I was always making jokes, always being the sort of class clown, always sort of this happy go lucky guy, good at sport, all that sort of thing. That was my thing. And I realized that if this guy wasn't happy where he was, I realized that no matter where I went and what I, even if I became a CEO of a company, I wouldn't be happy because mm. I had this underlying depression that I just hid from people and um, so that just jolted me and I went I, I went and got an apprenticeship as, as a carpenter and I went on like a almost like a two-year journey of discovery like what it just was yeah I just didn't know what which way was which and I just yeah went and just searched everywhere and, under, and eventually um, I decided that I was going to leave my apprenticeship which was I'd already done three years of it so yeah I was ready to, they tried to talk me out of it, but I knew that I had to go because I, I knew that my sort of calling, I suppose, was in helping people. Um, I had a passion for people and I was really um, good at picking up how people, where people were at, you know, in a room I could see someone that was vulnerable. Because you saw, because you could see a sense of yourself. I, I think probably I, I got so, I was such a high functioning person that I could, pick up the mm. subtle signs. I still can. Like, yeah. I'm still like that. And that. That's a big part of what I do at the club. Like I can pick up those signs well before anyone picks up those signs. And so, yeah, and so I just went, no, that's it. And so I, I decided and I did a lot of stuff with, you know, youth and young adults and um, families and that stuff and did that for sort of 10 years before I sort of got, it all sort of came crashing back a bit. Again, I got busy. I, I'm very high functioning and so I sort of, um, if I've got enough to do, I can sort of like keep, keep that at under wraps keep that at bay. <clears throat> yeah. And so I sort of did that for ten years, pretty much, um, until it all sort of came crashing down again. And um, I've sort of reevaluated and, and followed my heart back into sport welfare, as opposed to. So how bad did it get? Well, it was pretty bad. So I had after. So I've got two kids. Um, amazing wife, like the best wife. Ever, everyone's really jealous of my wife. <laughs> <Good for laughs> um, she and so we've been. We had a lot of trouble having our first kid. Like had to spend a lot of money going to, not for any reason we know why, but we sort of took uh, probably about two, three years to have our first kid. We had had a son, and everything was great. Started a, a new job, and I it was all going really well. Everything was great. He was about nine months, nine months old, and um, we went for a trip to New Zealand for a friend of mine's wedding. And um, when we were over there, they hardly been nine months old, still breastfeeding and all that sort of stuff. And my wife Sarah was really sick, really sick, and we were just we just thought she'd got you know sort of food poisoning or something. She was so sick that she was throwing up so much. We went to the doctor and said we need to give her a shot because it was ruining our holiday. Mm. And um, he sort of went through a few things and he said, oh, do you think you might be pregnant? And we're like, no. Like, 
I'm still breastfeeding. You know, he's nine months old. He's only nine months old. Mm. Anyway, she did test before she was pregnant. Completely out of the blue. It was like yeah. the first one just kick-started everything. And um, so we had our second child pretty much 18 months after after our first one. So there's a pretty small one. So Harley was only, you know, only just been walking and stuff yeah. for not very long. And we got a brand new baby. baby. Wow. And so I was very busy at my job. I was working crazy hours. Yeah, running quite a big a big program and stuff like that. And I, yeah, I, I remember just, it's it's hard to remember, but I, I just fell back into a really, really, really bad depression, like pretty much instantly when she was born. And, and um, I probably, like, it was different this time. Like it was, you know, I, I have a lot of, had a lot of down times in that time and I was able just to, to get out, out of them just mm-hmm. naturally by probably digging back into my work and that sort of stuff. But it was different this time. It was, um, it got really, really bad and lack of sleep. Yeah. And she just didn't sleep well and that sort of stuff. And I knew pretty early on, probably a few weeks in, that something was, was really wrong. Mm. Like, um, and it, and it sort of, how it sort of came out for me was that I, I, I realized that I just didn't bond with her. Um, she was just this beautiful little girl and I knew I, I, I should love her. Yeah. I knew I knew that I did love her, like, you know, in the back of my mind, but I just, like, you just knew I didn't want her. Something was amiss, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. That, that's a really hard thing to say, but for some reason, and you and you couldn't tell me why because she's gorgeous, mm. she still is, and, and yeah, I just didn't just didn't want her, and, and I just fell into And I, I remember trying to say to some people, like, oh, I'm really tired, I'm really like she's just not sleeping, and everyone just sort of like put it off. Oh, that's just babies, you know, whatever. And so I, and then by the time it got to the point where it was so bad, I couldn't tell anyone because the, it started to get so bad. The thoughts in my head were really bad about like wanting to get rid of her and and to you know to to do harm to my mm. child. And so it was too too far then. Yeah. And I and I was scared of like losing my job and. Uh, and it got to the point where then I just that was that was sort of the turning point. I fell into a really deep um, episode where I was just imagining things, and um, so I would be sitting at, across the table like this from someone having a chat to them about how bad their life was, and, and I was like on autopilot. I, I was saying all the things that I always mm. say, but I was not even in the conversation. I was just I was like looking around. I was just paranoid. I would lie. Uh, I would lie awake at night, and I would hear everything. I would just hear. Every drip, every noise, and I could just—I felt like things were in my house. Yeah, I felt I could see things in my house. I would have nights where like horrible, horrible nightmares. Mm-hmm. I would have nights where I'd be just held down, in, and I would be awake, and I could there was someone standing mm-hmm. over me, choking me, and I was trying to scream out. And as I was sitting in coffee shops helping people through situations, I would be hearing things in my head saying, "You know, go and." punch that person mm. over there from behind so that you get sent to jail. I had this really – so it was like this two-pronged thing where I had these really evil, crazy thoughts and hallucinations. And on top of that, then my mom um, was telling me that you need to get away from your family, you need to run away, you need to protect protect them. Because mm. I knew I, lo- I loved them, but yeah. I just needed to run away. And I just started just trying to derail my life from that point, just went off the rails and it eventually – yeah, I just was trying to do everything to lose my job 
really. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to lose my job because I wanted to get out. I wanted to protect mm. everyone and I wanted, to, I wanted to go to jail. That was my big one that I wanted to do. Because you thought that people would be safe from you yeah. if you were in jail. Yeah, I thought I was just a risk and like I was – I was really concerned that I would wake up in the morning and you'd have done something and I'd have done something crazy like yeah and so I would start to like put myself away or um I would start what I would do is I would I worked on the weekends and so I would I would do a, a presentation at night and I would stay awake for the days leading up to it because I didn't want to do anything and so I would not sleep for days. That's a, and that must have been so hard. And then I would go to work and I say that my wife would say, oh, I still need to work on this presentation. And then I, which I did have to do, wouldn't do it. I would sleep at work right, on the couch every, every, every week. I would sleep because I, there was no one around that I could hurt. So I would sleep and I would wake up just before the presentation make a couple of notes and I'd go up and, and I was just on autopilot. I could just do it. I just went up and did this 30-minute talk and then that was it, you know, and so I would like, yeah, and so I was just petrified and I just wanted to say, wanted to save them for myself. I wanted to do anything I could mm. do and eventually got to the point where um, like I'd done, so, you know, so much crazy stuff and I was off the rails so much that I eventually just, I, I wanted to kill myself for a long time and that was one of the main things that was going through my head because I didn't want the sh- to bring shame on my family by going to jail because I wanted to go to jail and I wanted to I wanted to get away from them in a way that, yeah, just seemed like it wasn't their fault. Mm. I didn't want to bring shame. And then I, but I wanted to kill myself, but there was so much connected to that in my family. Like mm. I'd seen the hurt mm. so, so much. I'd experienced the hurt and so I didn't want them to go through that again. And so eventually I, um, on the way home one day, don't really remember, but I ran my car into a, into a power pole at about 90. So and that was sort of the, the end of it and ended up in hospital, all sort of came out, what was, was going on, and then I um, started to the process of starting to deal with um, the psychosis and the you know, depression that led, led to the psychosis. So it was sort of a yeah, pretty long. So you're, honestly, I, I know your story. Mm. And I, it just... Oh, it's just a fabulous story. I, because I know where it goes. That that that's why I'm just so full of admiration for you for sharing that. Can I ask this? When you were in hospital and you were in a position where you could share some of those the terrible thoughts that you were having and your fears, what? How did it feel to actually share it for the first time when it had been inside your head for so long? At first, I was re- reluctant. To share it mm. because it still was like it seemed like a really um, evil thing, and I still had this fear that even though like it finally sort of come out, and I I still wanted to protect my family, and I still wanted to I still had this idea that I didn't want them to think that I thought that way. Um, so that was really difficult. But eventually, when I started to share it, it probably to hear that um, to hear that, that it was all right. But that it's not normal was yeah. like a sort of a freeing, yeah, a freeing and that thing. there was a reason. Yeah, there was a reason why yeah. those thoughts were intrusive. And because so like even the things that I was doing, they, you know, like I remember, like counsellors and everyone, you know, talking to me, and they were just like, "This is not you. This is not what you're like. You're not like this." And and it was like everything that I stood for sort of went out the window when I was in this because, like, I was like my thoughts were like you've got to 
get away your evil. Mm. You got to get away, and so it was pretty much like everything that I stood against. And I you do. Became, I became yeah. like yeah. pretty much to the to everything that I stood against. I became yeah. because I was just wanted to. Yeah, I wanted to get away. Mm. Like I wanted to, um, and that that sort of area in my life is pretty mixed up. Mm. Like kind of remember got some pretty bad memories yeah um stuff to do with that but yeah it's um i think in in the last little bit like learning about it and you know meeting psychologists and doctors and everything like that has taught me a lot and it's made a lot more sense of my life leading up to it growing up and that sort of stuff it's it's given me a lot of freedom to go okay that's, that's all right. That's, so just yeah. kind of in a bit of a nutshell, what what did you learn? You know, what did you find out about yourself and your illness that, that you know, I, I'd like, I hope it brings you peace yeah. with, with education to yeah. know because a lot that's, of people don't know these things and they don't, they don't talk about it mm. um, and, and they just kind of brush it aside. But yeah. there are explanations for us becoming unwell with our mental health. Yeah, so definitely. what did you learn? Well, I've probably learned a lot. Like I've, I've learned my warning signs big time. Like I... I, I almost have like a list and I've, I've been working with that with my wife and to realize these are the ones when I start to go down this sort of road and because I sort of have had like a little bit like I've had a struggle with sort of depression for a long time um my always my go-to was just to, to push it down and achieve more work harder and so um and that was a really good technique because I was high functioning mm. and did a good job, and so I got you know opportunities and that sort of stuff, and I was capable. Um, but I re- I've switched that on its head completely, and I'm not. I'm my sort of achieving and my doing a good job is secondary to that now. It's almost like um, yeah, I've got a much better hold on hold on it um, from that point of view. Yeah, I I think big part of it like learning about the part learning about it has made so much more sense about some of the things that i've been like when i was a teenager Mm. and stuff like that some of the things that i realized and how i got out of it back then wasn't the healthy way of getting out of it and so now yeah it sort of empowered me to yeah it's probably just sitting there with a psychologist and them explaining this is this is what happens this is psychosis Mm. and what it's like and just it just it frees you just yeah. completely to understand, yeah. well, okay, I'm not afraid. No. Um, you know, it's just like someone gets a, a you know, a, a viral infection or whatever, you know, they're not afraid for getting a viral infection. Yeah, absolutely. You don't <laughs> and, bring it on yourself. No. It's not something that you, any, anyone yeah. would choose, you know, so, physical illness, mental illness. But it's still, it's still been a struggle for, to explain it to people, especially like even within my family, there's like people with um, you know, depression issues and stuff like that with my family. Um, and they probably still don't understand the psychosis no. part of it at all. It's a, it's not very understood. No. So if um if there was some, I've got so many things I want to ask you. If there was a, a young guy struggling now, let's you know say you know, twenty early early twenties or whatever, um, struggling now with um, maybe thoughts that they were. That they were worried about um, seeing and hearing things and, and all of the other symptoms associated with psychosis. What kind of advice would you give them? Oh, well, first of all, if, if I was like if I was working with them and I was in a you know had some sort of relationship with them, first of all, then I would be really keen just to let them know that that they're not uh, crazy or that they're you know and that this um, the thoughts that are going in their head um, to bring them out. It isn't going to mean that you're going to alienate yourself. 
Right. That's, so, so, and so to, for, to encourage them to talk about their thoughts, it doesn't mean that if you share your thoughts with someone that it is necessarily going to be um, a bad thing or that it means that those thoughts become real. That's right. That's probably the big yeah. thing because if you're thinking they're so real to you and you're, yeah. you're so in this world, this, this alternative world that to share, to share them, you almost think that you're, they're real. So and it will manifest in some yeah, way. That, yeah. Like, so if I'm saying that I've got these thoughts against this person, it's almost like saying that if I've got the, if I've got this feeling towards them that like that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And it's like incriminating yourself. It's yeah. like, and that's why the thought of, well, if I'm a good, if I want to, I want to protect people, I want to get away from, them, I want to get to jail mm. so that I can be locked up. Yeah. So that because, but they're just thoughts. And so, yeah, so, so normalizing that from a starting point. And then probably if I was in a relationship with them, I'd say, look, this happens to people and we need, like, can you, would you come to the doctor with me? Yeah. Pretty much just yeah. going along with them, yeah. going on that journey and, and, and starting with the GP, getting themselves, uh, you know, a, a psychologist referral, um, where we can go and start to, to talk about it. And, um, that's probably where I would, it's, it's not something that I would ever take on myself. I would be big on maintaining the relationship, um, encouraging that person that it's okay to share with yeah. me and that sort of stuff being that sounding board and normalizing it and saying this is just, this happens to some people. It does, it does. So that would be where I would sit and then I would then look to refer yeah. them to. And I've got a big um, referral list of people that I use. Um, so I would. So tell us about getting better. Tell us about your recovery. Yeah, well, it's been a long road. Like, I, I didn't work for a year and a half or something like that afterwards. But it's been sort of a, it's been a little bit of a slower road this time. And that's probably been important for me because until now, I probably didn't, I didn't know, I, I needed this fall because I didn't know what it was before. Mm-hmm. And it would have just, if I just had a little bit of a, a fall and, and nothing came of it and just snapped back out and got in, back into and achieved enough, it would have just come back again mm. later um, whenever there was another big down. Yeah. And so this time has been, it's been on purpose long for me because um, I needed to actually learn how to live with this mm. or learn how to um, manage it and that sort of stuff. So I, it's been a long road from that with a lot like I've, Done a lot of counselling, psychologist. Meet with a psychologist pretty much every week. And um, I, early on, it was probably I spent the time in hospital, and we did like I went through an ECT program. So that was a probably early stuff that sort of helped me, me get right. through it. That sort of snapped me back into um, into reality. But then on purpose, we've made a decision my wife and I to take it slow and to and to rebuild pretty much. Um, because otherwise, if I just got back into achieving and and, and doing that sort of stuff, it just I, I wouldn't I wouldn't notice if it came. I would right. be too late. Yeah, you know yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and because I've seen what's happened in in that period, and then looking back when I was, and I remember when I was about twenty, had a really bad uh, psychosis um, time. When I was about fifteen, and I got picked up at school mm. through a screening. Uh, and then when I was twelve, probably they're the, probably the big ones. And so I, yeah, so I probably decided this time on purpose, even though it's cost us a lot. What it's been big, yeah. Cost it's an investment though in, yeah, in, it's it, it, in the future. We, we've lost 
so much and like even like um professionally what professional wise like um yeah having to sort of go back and start again but i know that the rebuild and that sort of stuff is going to help me in the long mm. run because i understand so much more now and um i think that like we can get through life and i can yeah i can sort of um be real probably for the first time in my life with people and I can use it to help other people. Yeah, absolutely, you so, can. Yeah. There are so many people, Damon, that, that um, don't speak out. Well, and with, with one in five people are struggling, you know, and it's lots of people around, like I've got more than five people in my family. Absolutely. So, so yeah, so every, there's there's plenty of people. If you look at one in five and then we, we talk about being, you know, 800, 800 people at this club I work for. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of people. Exactly, exactly, one hundred percent. Yeah, and so it's really been an empowering thing for me. It's no longer a um, thing that I sort of have in the background, this sort of like a bit of depression, you know, down period. It's like really empowering for me. It's really open in my within my wife and I, and yeah, and so yeah, I, I hope I hope that it helps a lot of people. Um, I think it will. So no doubt about mm. it. No doubt about it. Um. So, looking back, you know. So you know, you know what your triggers are, and you work on that. Um, you see a psychologist every week. Are yeah, you on any right medication there. now? I'm not on any medication at the moment. When I um, was at the hospital and they did the ECTs, they had to strip me off all my medication, which was like it was bad. And so I was on a lot of like um, psychotic sort of uh, three or four different types of of, of drugs, and so they had to strip me for the ECTs. So afterwards, I made a bit of a conscious call with the help of um, those that I was working with to not go back on those. And that was because this, the meds that I was on, was um, they, they, they got some really bad side effects. A lot of people are on antidepressants and stuff like that, and there are some side effects, but they can sort of live on those. Um, the psychosis, they're bad. Yeah. And so, if you, and so and we made a bit of a conscious call um, because of the, the correlation between uh, the depression and and moving into psychosis that that I really needed to be aware of where I was mentally. And so if I was on antidepressants, it would mask yeah, a lot of that. Right. And so if I got to the point where I was like you know, like I you know, function really well. No one would even know that I have any sort of depression depression um depression issues. But I I know that when I'm going down a bit yeah. darker, a bit deeper, and if I start having those thoughts and I can voice it to my wife i can talk to my psychologist about it um even if i wasn't meeting my psychologist weekly i could go back to my doctor and say hey look i'm having these things again yeah and get back out to the psychologist and work through them and so i, ne- I almost need to be aware of where i'm at and not yeah. be masked from that no you need to feel it yeah i need to feel it and so that's why i'm not on but yeah i have been and um yeah like i know that they're there if something was to go but i I don't i don't feel i feel like it's a lot more manageable now than it's ever been it's never been manageable before it was always just a background thing that happened but now i feel i I feel really in touch with my symptoms yeah you've got control yeah i really do feel like that the um so the treatment and the intervention that you had in hospital and as an outpatient collaborative with everyone or did or was there i mean obviously at the start when you were very unwell there was mm-hmm. there was a limited opportunity for collaboration yeah. but it sounds like you, you that you're um in contact with those carers around you um you know 
GP, psychiatrist, psychologist, whatever, and the decisions have been made together. Is that right? To be honest with you, most of my most of it's been individually led, and it hasn't been it hasn't been that collaborative, unfortunately. It, like, individually led by you, you're yeah. sa- right. Well, that you, that's where I'm going. Actually, that's yeah. because I think there there is a misunderstanding that if, if we become unwell and we have to go to hospital or and we need treatment of some kind, that p- things are going to be done to us mm-hmm. and we have no choice. Yeah. And that is that is not the case. And, and 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 I'm so I'm glad that you've kind of confirmed that. So you led your tr- you led your treatment. You led yeah, your so recovery early on. I, I can't remember how I got to the hospital first of all, but through the sort of recovery early on, like there was a couple of times where I just rocked up the emergency, said, look. I'm not good. I'm not good. You need to put me in here. And they did. And But afterwards, the, probably the, the post sort of once I got out, I, I didn't have much of a, a follow-up. And I can't remember whether that was a bit my own fault. Um, but I, I sought out a, a counsellor and, and went down that road. Mm. Um eventually it got to the point where like I really wanted to make a real change and really understand what's going on. So just, uh, honestly, moved, it's a fabulous story. Well, I moved from the, the counsellor to more of a, like a psychologist. Yeah. I had to get, and my counsellor was good because he was a GP. Yeah. So I had a lot of like help with like, I had you know some time where I ha- had a lot of anxiety going on with yeah. one, worrying that I was going to fall back into yes. a psychosis. State. Yeah. So I, you know, he helped me with Valium and different things that get me through that. So, so that was really good. If you can get like a counselor or a bit to both, that's really helpful. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been sort of more, and like my wife's been really, really good at that sort mm. of stuff. Like she's been, you know, made the tough calls and that sort of stuff yeah. and on the hard yards and yeah. it's paying off now. But honestly, yeah, like, I could just keep going with this. What do you worry now that you might that that psychosis might be an experience that you'll have again? And if so, how do you manage those fears? Because I know, especially for young people that have their first episode of psychosis, sometimes the the, the fear going forward of, of going into that awful state again and being so frightened and, and and completely losing touch is is something that they worry about the most. How do you manage that? Um, fear about of slipping into psychosis again. So, so most of any time I've got any sort of anxiety issues, it's all and that. Yeah, it's it's around two things. It's around worrying that I'm going to like um, fall back into that sort of that sort of thing, or um, I have a lot of anxiety going places that I'm going to see people from my past. Right. So like my past job and that stuff, because as far as they know, they don't know anything really. They just think that I was this great person that was doing great and then I just had this massive fall like and then I was gone I was fired and out of there that was pretty much what yeah and so I have a lot of anxiety about going places and seeing people mm. real and because there was no real understanding from their point of view and never any real follow-up they don't understand, really, they don't understand at all yeah. um I hope one day like in the future that like I'll be able to go back there and sit down with them and explain this because I think that in my role there would be people that would have had this in the past and they haven't spoken up and or they've had massive falls and they don't even realise because they're trying to escape their life. They're yeah. trying to get away from people. They don't they just think, Oh, this person's lost the plot and mm. yeah. at the door. So I hope one day I'll be able to go back and sit down with them in an honest way and say, Hey, look, no no bad blood about, you know, it's all good. Like you didn't understand. But I want to help you guys understand the future yeah. because you're gonna to need to watch out for this stuff because people in in roles where they're caring for people all the time, twenty four seven, are going to struggle 
and have things and they're not going to have anyone to talk to. No. And they'll fall into these sort of states. So that's one side of it. But the anxiety on the other side of it is to do with the fact that whenever I like have a bad night's sleep mm. or I, I can't get to sleep or whatever, I start to think, oh, if I don't get like two nights sleep in a row, am I going to like – like there were nights like where I had three nights and I didn't sleep. Like, yeah. Um, when I, I moved in with a, a friend of mine was trying to help me out in the recovery time and took me in and I just lived his house by myself mm. away from my family. And he and I, I would have nights. I would just go to him. I just would sleep, not sleep, yeah. nights on end. And so when I have a, like a bad sleep, whatever. I, and before that used to be like I just internalize that. I wouldn't say anything to it. But mm. now because of the empowerment of knowing what this is and that and that I just say to my wife, oh, I didn't sleep that well last night. And and so she just monitors that and she checks on every morning. She did, how did you sleep? Like that's just one of the things that we do. I had to sleep and I said, oh, I couldn't sleep at the start of the night but then I got some at the end and, and so she just monitors that and she and knowing her she'll be like, okay, I'm going to take the kids out and you're going to have a sleep. Like that's yeah. what she I oh, Honestly, she you've nailed because, it, haven't you? Yeah, like she, she understands that, 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 that you know, um, the reason why I fell into this is because just practically I was down, didn't get enough sleep, fell into it. Yeah. That's as simple as that. Yeah. It can happen to anyone. It can. And so um, – yeah, so I think knowing those sort of triggers stops yeah. me. And I've, I verbalize them now. Instead of just going, oh, I didn't get much sleep last night, I'm going to go back to work and not think about it. Now I just say simply to her, I didn't get much sleep last night. And she knows that. And, and or I'm, you know, I've had a couple of nights where I've laid up and I've like been quite paranoid and hearing things. And, mm. um, and I just ex- explain that to her and she, she goes, okay. And so she will, you know, I don't know, maybe put some music on before we go to bed or yeah. it's simply like tickle my back or whatever. Whatever until, it takes, but, yeah. Um, and she knows that if I'm, if I'm going well, we're going well. It's as yeah. simple as that. Oh, yeah, you know, like, yeah. Um, she sees the best in me. She knows what I'm really like. Yeah. And so she wants me to be healthy and so she just helps me, helps me do whatever I need. And, you know, if I need to go and go for a run or whatever, like she'll – help me do that like she's helping me by going to the gym like she doesn't need to go to the gym she's smoking she goes to the gym with me yeah. because she knows that's good for me yeah so it's about having that people and it's not just about educate knowing yourself it's about educating the people, people around, around you, you because they need to be looking out for those signs and if I, I believe that from from this point on if i can continue to have those people around me and, and my wife's on board and the more she understands that I don't think I, I think I could go through life and never slip back into that right. potentially yeah it, you know if I know those signs and that sort of stuff and that's the dream really of what what it can be so it's really empowering it's amazing um, yeah. honestly honestly David you are a really really inspirational man I just don't think that people some people need to go through this stuff otherwise other people aren't going to have that support. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's going to be some people that go through this stuff and it's going to be hard and it's going to be sometimes embarrassing and you've done stupid stuff and people are going to look down on you and never not understand. But I I walk through this world now and I, I, I can go in any room and I can see people that are struggling and I can, I can be that early intervention for people. And if that means me going through this and if that – I'll take that. I'll take that if that means that my son doesn't have to – go through this or my auntie doesn't have to go through this or my uncle or, or you know the guy at the soccer club doesn't have to go through this I'll, I'll i'll take it because i've got the people around me i've got the support that i can get through it learn from it and then 
be able to help other people get through it. And it's an amazing turnaround. I mean, it, your, um, your, your recovery journey is really quite remarkable. It is. And there are so many people that don't do as well as you've done. And I, I, I truly think that people listening to this podcast, if they're experiencing their own mental health problems and particularly around psychosis, which is something that people don't talk about enough, it needs to be talked about more to be understood. You've just done a, an amazing thing just by sharing your story with us. Yeah. on this podcast well yeah i think if it's going through that they can look me up because yeah like you have you have an ally in me like that's really and there's and there's plenty of people out there who are your allies and yeah you don't and within that group they understand you know there's not that stigma around it they understand what it's like and it's not weak it's not you're not alone um, there's people out there who've experienced it and have come out the end of it, who are and who are managing it and that sort of stuff. Who can be your ally and stand by you? They're lucky to have you at Brisbane FC, no doubt about it. And all those young guys and young girls that you're that you've already come into contact with and that you come into contact with in the future, they're lucky kids. I tell you, they are. Thank Revolution you so much. I know you, that's it, and you, you're you're the you're the maverick. Yeah. You're leading the way. Thank you so much, Damon, for sharing your story. Um, you'll always be a friend of CDC's. Damon is a mental health first aider, I have to add. He's a very bloody good one too. <laughs> um, thank you for sharing your story. That was amazing. If you're listening to this podcast and you would like some help or you would like to speak to someone about anything to do with mental illness or suicide or psychosis, we do recommend that you reach out to an organisation such as Lifeline who can be contacted on one three. 1114 or there's plenty of information available if you'd like to find out more from organizations such as Beyond Blue at www.beyondblue.org.au